Before we begin today, I just wanted to acknowledge that Full Spirals is made possible through the generous support of our patrons. A special thanks to Anonymous, Bree, and Kelly E. for being our latest Patreon sponsors. And I'm so grateful to all of you for subscribing and continuing to support the vital work of making creativity a force of healing and growing in our world. And for helping to give healing a voice. Do you want to help with this vital work? Click the Patreon tab in the show notes and become a spinner today. Welcome to a very special Project I'm Speaking episode of Bull Spirals. Project I'm Speaking episodes are a series of interviews conducted with the intention of featuring brave and talented women who agreed to speak up about their creative process, about how they found their unique voices, and how they intend to use those gorgeous voices in the world now. Because we need this. All of us need this right now, more than ever. So enjoy this time and this unique voice while you take in this episode of Project I'm Speaking. I'm Stacey Parrish. statistics professor, Joy Jordan helps people struggling with anxiety, exhaustion, and perpetual busyness to slow down and savor their lives. Her work takes her into prisons, corporate offices, schools, nonprofits, and community classes using simple, low commitment, but high impact tools that are quick to master. Joy helps people turn mindfulness and meditation into the everyday practice they've always wanted. She's a barrier breaker, a writer, photographer, and a joyful, pun intended, human being. We sat down for what ended up being a really, really deep, meaningful, and rich conversation about creativity, mindfulness, breath, and voice. Enjoy this conversation with Joy Jordan. Hello, Joy. <laughs> Hi, Stacy. <laughs> so we were chit-chatting a little bit, and we're just going to dive in. Mm-hmm. Okay. So from my vantage point, your voice is so important for three reasons. There were three reasons that I really wanted to to have you on. One is the patriarchy. There are a number of different spots in your story where you moved against the patriarchy. And another one is capitalism. That's another area that I feel like you stepped outside the bounds. And I love hearing about the way your career unfolded. And I'm really interested in amplifying your voice in that direction. And the last one is elevating the divine feminine. Because the work you're doing now, it's that's what it is. Well, I'm actually fascinated by what you just shared, Stacy. And oh. thank you. How is it that you view what I've done in relation to the patriarchy? I just feel like the patriarchy and capitalism go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. And in order to rise in those hierarchical institutions, you end up having to take on all of those characteristics, striving, achieving, ignoring your gut, going with what you know, all of that kind of stuff. And one piece of 
my background and my story is that, in fact, I have my degree, my PhD is in statistics, which is a very traditional male field, and that school and sports, I've also been a lifelong athlete. And that was a really special place for me on the court. As soon as you said that about the patriarchy, I thought, well, I was swimming in it because I was in a field I was always excelled at math and I went on after college because I love school so much. It was a place that I also found some safety that I went on to get my PhD because I love school so much, really. Mm-hmm. And what am I going to get it in? Well, what I was good at, which was statistics, really surrounded by a lot of men. Mm-hmm. Again, so these places where I was kind of swimming in all of that and achieving and doing well in those spaces, Mm -hmm. and then eventually down the road a little while making a shift. So thank you for bringing all of that up. It's interesting to reflect on. Um, Yeah, I'm just looking, you said that school was a safe place that would end up permeating your life, Mm -hmm. because you ended up becoming a professor. And then when you talked about sports, you said that sports embodied me Sports were where I felt emotion that I had shut down at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these were two really important things for me growing up. Something I shared with you, but I'll share with the audience just to give some, set the the groundwork for this, is that my mom uh, was bipolar. And bipolar at a time where that was not understood at Mm -hmm. all. And she had her first depressions and mania in my first five years, um, which is a really important developmental time mm-hmm. we know for kids. But my mom wasn't sure what was going on. My dad wasn't sure what was going on. This was a long time. This is 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there just wasn't the knowledge and the interest and the openness that we have now around mental illness. And so those were really powerful, impactful things in my life. Now, she did get diagnosed and and did get treated, and so that was also an important thing. But within my family, we never, when I was a kid, we didn't openly speak about all of these things. Mm -hmm. We have as adults. We have as adults really talked through all of this, and there's been a lot of healing and really important work with that. Mm -hmm. But my parents just didn't have the tools at that time to have those conversations, And what that meant for me as a kid is that I didn't really understand what was going on. I had a skewed view of emotions because of my mom going up and down and up and down. And I didn't have tools or skills for how I was going to be working with it. So I think I shut down a lot of my emotions Mm -hmm. because I didn't necessarily trust them. Now, two things around that. One is that I started playing sports Uh, Even in elementary school, this was way before sports are how they are now, where there's club sports and people are playing all year long. This is when it was just, you know, you played in school with your high school team, your middle school team. And I I played sport every season. And as I mentioned, I happened to be given some natural talent in that area. And I worked really hard and I loved it. And it was an embodiment, I think, now about my work and meditation and mindfulness. Mm-hmm. And I'm so drawn to somatic practices where I'm really in my body, feeling things, trusting my body, feeling its wisdom. A lot of that comes from my experience as an athlete. When I was young, that real, like I did trust my body. I understood it and trusted it. 
So that's been a beautiful thing throughout my life. And then the emotion piece, just letting the ups and the downs, right? The losses and the sadness of that, the triumphs and the feeling good, the flow, like that was a space for me to feel all those things mm-hmm. in a natural way on the, on the, on the court, yeah, on the field. So that, that was a, a beautiful thing. School was another place that when it felt, when it felt like things were hard at home and in particular, just because my mom was having a hard time. I felt like I could go to school and and do something, you know, Mm. and I was really, again, blessings. Um, I was born with some natural intelligence. So I really excelled in school. And I'm lucky that I'm neurotypical and that I kind of checked all the boxes of what what school measures. Mm -hmm. So I did well, and Mm -hmm. I felt good about that. But that became a place where I felt good. I felt safe. I felt like um, I in some levels, I was trying to to control this life that was absolutely not in my control, right? Yeah. But that was a place I could do it. And so then that just felt like a safe structure for me. Learning, I loved learning. Again, I, I had some skill at it, so I could do it. I got some positive strokes around it, and it just felt comfortable. So then after college, when it's like the what's next, yeah. I had no idea what the hell was next. Mm. And so I thought, well, why don't I keep going to school? Because I really (laughs) love school. (laughs) Good answer. So why don't I just go get my PhD? Because I don't know, then I could teach. And what I would get my PhD in is what I was qualified for from college. I was a math major. And then I I was actually at a statistics. Okay. um, I was going to ask you what your major was. Okay. And so that that's what you go to school. And so that's kind of how it all fell out. It wasn't as if I had some vision early on. I want to be a college professor someday. It was Mm -hmm. like, I just like going to school. Mm. That's where I met my husband. And he too is like in school and in school and in school. Let's let's get another degree. Let's get another degree. (laughs) We laugh about that now because it was just kind of a safe, cozy space for a while. Yeah. Yeah. And then ultimately, when I after I got my PhD, I, I knew I wanted to teach, and and that I wanted to teach someplace where like that the teaching mattered, and not to a big university where research matters and teaching is secondary. Mm. I wanted to be someplace where the teaching was really valued, and the students were I could see them as people, as whole people, and and that's what brought me ultimately to Lawrence University in Appleton, Wisconsin, which brought us here 20 some years ago for that, for that career, for that job. Mm. And I remember um, in a conversation that you and I have had before, you talked about your students and how they were more interesting to you than your subject matter, eventually, not at first. But that really, that really speaks to that, the piece that you were looking for when you decided to teach there. Absolutely. It's the people it was a student's. And I did have a lot of excitement around statistics initially because it was this topic that people thought, number one, was boring. Number two, that they weren't good at in general. Mm-hmm. I taught a ton of intro statistics to a wide swath of people. And so I loved counteracting that message mm-hmm. because it is interesting. And yes, everyone can do it. And so that was a lot of fun. I had a lot of energy and a lot of creativity around the subject matter itself. But ultimately, it was the students that I cared about. And my messaging changed every year around what I was focusing on. And any of my former students will kind of maybe laugh a little or smile when when I say this, but I would I would when I would pass back an exam, I would say, okay, before I hand this to you, it's really important that you remember that you're not this grade. 
This isn't who you are. This isn't your identity. It's one piece of information about something that's happened in your life. Uh, and I've got a lot of feedback on that. We can talk about it, but it's not who you are mm. because there can be back to that achieving and the striving and the these letter grades. We can think that's who we are and, and it's not that case. So mm. I would I would be talking with my students a lot about balance, about maybe they have to trade studying for this whatever it might be, so that they can get some sleep or they've got something else going on that's more important to them, that's mm -hmm. okay. That these choices are what happened as we move through life, that that's really important. And as each year went on, what I valued most was talking to my students in my office hours, but not about statistics, about their <laughs> life. You know, like, what are you going to do? What are your dreams? What are your hopes? What are your fears? What's going on? Um, maybe some tension that was happening in their families or anxiety that was coming up to just talk about those things is what I valued ultimately more than mm -hmm. helping them with the statistical material. Yeah. And when you were talking about emotion, you talked about how, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm seeing you as such a role model for them. But when we talked about it, you talked about how therapy was important for you and you started it in graduate school. Mm -hmm. And is that where you discovered meditation as well? I was doing some reading about meditation back in graduate school, but that's not when I first started. It wasn't until I actually took the job at Lawrence and actually I was doing some more reading around meditation, reading about it, note this statement, <laughs> not doing it. I was oh, thinking this, about being present. <laughs> this is really interesting to read about. Yeah. And then I started actually doing it when I hit some really strong anxiety while mm. I was at Lawrence. But yeah, graduate school was such an important time in terms of getting into the therapy. This was these huge conversations I was having with my family, with my dad around um, my mom's illness and just how hard that was mm -hmm. for everyone to carry, including my mom, for all of us. And everyone was just doing the best they could with in a really difficult situation that wasn't well supported at that time. Um, generally in our culture. So we had these deep conversations about that and the therapy was so helpful. I feel like that's just really where things opened up for me to see myself and the world differently is mm -hmm. through the therapy in graduate school. And so through that lens too, in listening to my students, I, I'd always encourage that for them because they could get counseling, they could get free counseling mm. at the, on the college campus. And I love that in graduate school that there was free counseling. Yeah. How, how important, how vital, how, how much of an honoring of the whole person. Uh, and I, this is another thing I would joke with my students about at, at Lawrence is that that they're not a floating brain in my classroom. Mm, and nice. I feel like sometimes academia can make folks feel like they're basically just this brain. Our, our society, our culture can make yeah. us be really heady and ignore our bodies, ignore our hearts, ignore all these other messages. And therapy isn't the only way, but it's, it's a powerful way to start to work through some of those things mm -hmm. and see all the different layers of our experience. So was there a catalyst to going to therapy in the first place in graduate school? I think it was probably around understanding our family system mm. that I grew up with and my mom's illness and how to be with that. Because it, it, it occurred for her whole life that she was working with what the bipolar uh, 
condition was bringing up in her with strong anxiety that she had and how our whole family was processing that and being with it because it's hard. And like I said, hard for my mom too, hard for every single one of us in the family. And I feel like that's probably was the prompt. You know, Stacy, probably at some level it was stress. Like I would have just said, I'm stressed. And pretty quickly I realized, ooh, this is a place of unwinding, mm. of, of really unwinding and understanding better what impact that all had on my upbringing and who mm. I was and just having more conversations. Mm-hmm. Um, with my dad, for example, around that was so empowering. It was like, this is a different way of being. We can talk about these things and how amazing is it? Yeah. I really appreciate that you encouraged your students to take advantage of getting therapy as well. I'm, I'm happy that it feels like therapy and counseling that's all less stigmatized than it used, than it used to be. But I'm still surprised when I meet someone who's never been to therapy, (laughs) Like, really? How do you how do you process anything ever? Really? You're carrying all of that by yourself? Wow. Agreed. I have found it so helpful at different points of my life. Mm-hmm. In graduate school, early in my 30s, later in my 30s, another round, you know, in my 40s. So in different seasons of life, it is so valuable and different types of therapy too. Mm-hmm. But for the college students, there's just so much that's expected of them from all different areas of their life. And I think they perhaps don't, and I'm speaking for myself too, when I was a college student, don't yet have all the life experiences or the understanding yeah. of themselves to sort through it, or even the friends that can really help with that because we just weren't quite as wise mm-hmm. because we get wisdom as we get older, as that's we right. try things out. And so I was always a big proponent of suggesting the therapy, also suggesting other outlets, getting more rest, getting sleep, having some fun. And this this other big piece is I would encourage making choices that you can't prioritize everything. Mm-hmm. And there's some things that might drop away and it doesn't mean something's wrong or bad or you've done something wrong. It's just you're going to prioritize this thing over here. This thing might not go as well and and that's okay because we can't we can't prioritize everything and and have it be all perfect i think yeah. that's another myth that gets sold to us yeah but i feel like a big part of what we can give to a younger generation is the modeling mm. the living by what is most important that if young folks can see somebody older who isn't so caught up in all of the achievement or the marketing messages or the doing and feels like they have just the littlest bit of inner calm or self-knowledge and that that's, they're all okay. You know, Mm -hmm. that, that kind of modeling for all of us is really vital. And I think Sometimes we might minimize how impactful that is by modeling a different way of being in this world. And people can see that and then they see something else that might be possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which kind of something else might be possible kind of brings me right back into when we were talking about meditation. You said it was about 20 years ago or so. That's when meditation found you or you found meditation. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. I... 
enjoy telling this story, not because it was a pleasant time in my life, but I'd like to be really real. I like to be really real when I'm talking with folks about meditation and mindfulness, because I feel like when, when folks might be listening to a meditation teacher, they think, oh, well, that person has it all together. Mm. And that's just not true. We all uh, meet our edges in all sorts of different ways. When I was working toward tenure at Lawrence, and for folks who are not in academia, your first seven years at an academic institution are pretty intense because you're going through a review process. And in your seventh year, you are either granted tenure or you're not. If you're granted tenure, you have a job for life. If you're not, then you're let go and you need to go find another calling or another place that you would be working. So it's this so it's kind of like probation. You're on probation for seven years? Yeah. Seven years. Uh-huh. Where you're basically striving. You're going through reappointment after four years and working on research, teaching, service, and you need to get all these boxes checked and ultimately get this tenure review. Talk about like the, the big like achievements. I know. Exactly and- what was going through my head. Speaking of the patriarchy and like... Achieving, yeah, wow, okay. So, and, and the sense of like, are, are you okay? What where your worth is? So you're moving toward this thing, and it's like, okay, I get tenure, I'm okay and good enough. If I don't get tenure, mm, I'm not. That's the feeling, right? Yeah. That, that you can't help but have with that. And I really. I was fully aware of all this. I was working really hard. It was also working just a ton of hours initially because it was so much fun. But then, you know, also because of I was pretty wrapped up in those externals, making sure that I was doing a good job, that everyone respected me and liked me. I didn't want to say no to things because, Mm -hmm. again, this like, well, I get tenure kind of thing. And so there's just a lot of stress around that and a lot of anxiety around it. And that anxiety presented itself in a lot of different, I started having physical symptoms. I had irritable bowel syndrome. That was, I think, the initial one. Mm-hmm. And I had, uh, what other physical symptoms did I have, Stacy? I had uh, acid reflux. I had irregular heartbeats. Panic and attacks. Then, uh, and then that's when the <laughs> panic attack one night, like after I had laid down in bed mm-hmm, and I woke really up. really did. Okay. Oh, yes. The panic attacks are what brought me to meditation. That's why I'm talking about it. But okay. plus, I think folks that are listening will understand that. I think that sense of feeling anxiety or having maybe a full-blown panic attack, it can be really scary. Mm. And it can feel like maybe we've done something wrong and we haven't. This, these are all symptoms that are happening because of of just habits in our minds and in our bodies, but things that we can retrain. So that was really scary to me and I knew I needed to make a change. And so that's when I said, I'm going to not just read about meditation. <laughs> I'm going to actually do the meditation. Yeah. And I committed one summer to... John Kabat-Zinn's mindfulness-based stress reduction program that I didn't take from another person. I basically read his book and just committed to it for myself, which mm-hmm. is 45 minutes a day of meditation and mindfulness. And mm-hmm. so that's what I did for that summer. And that is what really clicked in that feeling of, ah, okay, this is actually helpful. Mm-hmm. This is a really helpful thing. It's not only a way for me to get to know my mind and my heart and my body, but it's I can actually feel a difference when I'm meditating versus when I'm not. And so 
it wasn't always daily after that, but it was very regular, mm-hmm. including starting to go on. Um, I've been on 20 some meditation retreats, which were, were really helpful too. And the impetus came from a place of stress, of anxiety, of worry. Mm. Uh, and But meditation has been with me ever since then. Side note, I did get tenure. So there was a little space to relax around that. And I'd say that's really when I started to notice, okay, I got that, but am I really happy? You know, how can I start making bigger changes to have some of that balance that I was talking to my students about, that I was saying to them that they needed to starting to walk that talk um, after I had gotten tenure. Um, Yeah, I was going to say, did you get everything you ever wanted once you got tenure? (laughs) You ask with a smile. (laughs) There was definitely a relief. There's no question there was a relief. And then that really, I think, just created the space for me to start focusing more internally. I was so focused externally. Mm-hmm. Sort of this external looking for, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Yeah. And ultimately, what I recognized is I didn't feel okay in myself at some level. And I really needed to devote some time and energy and care to that. And meditation has been a huge part of that. Therapy is a way to do that too. Creativity is a way to do that too. To devote time to that internal look because the external wasn't working. If you were to offer, I'm thinking particularly about your students, did you offer them meditation advice? I'll share a story with you, Stacey. I would love to hear a story. (laughs) There was a period of time, and I can't remember where it was. It was po- that was sort of the post-tenure in that, okay, let's see what's going on here. And I was enjoying the meditation more, but I was trying to actually bring things in to the students more. Is there was a, I think it was maybe about a year where each term I would include on Fridays at the end of class, maybe five minutes, maybe three minutes of breathing. I didn't call it meditation. I didn't want to freak anybody out. We're just going to, we're just going to get quiet, take a few deep breaths and notice the breath. And I just did a really short guided meditation, let them kind of sit however they wanted to. I didn't make it at all fussy. And oh my good grief, the first time I did that, I was terrified to do it because I thought, wow, how will this be received? You know, all of this. And I wasn't ever quite sure, like, you know, what was going on with it, but I just kept doing it. I just kept doing it. And I'll never forget there was one Friday, it was with one of my upper level classes. So it was a little bit smaller class, maybe it's 10, 15 folks in it. And I had decided sort of partway through class that we had covered what we needed to cover. It was a Friday. And when it felt like we didn't need to keep pressing forward so fast, I would try to let the students leave early just to say like, you know, take a break, go do something fun, go sit on the lawn and look at the sky. And so I offered that up to them. I said, okay, where's where we need to be? So why don't you go enjoy? I let them out a half hour early from class on Friday. And so they're all looking at me, sort of starting to, some of them starting to pack up their things. And then one of the students, she looked up at me with these wide eyes and she said, wait, can't we do the breathing? (laughs) So great. Oh, of course we can do the breathing. So we did five minutes of the breathing and then I let them go out and enjoy their afternoon. That's great. So you mentioned creativity. 
When did that kind of sneak its way? It sounds like you've been creative all along. Like you've been a creative person all along. You said you were creative with your, the way you put your curriculum together with your statistics students. Um, Having kids breathe after a statistics class is pretty darn creative. But when did it personally come into your life as a balm? I'm trying to think of like what, how old I was, but I would guess this was later 30s maybe that I embraced it more Mm. outside of that sense of using the creativity in the classroom and what I was doing. I've always been really interested in photography. I've had a camera since I was a young kid. I had, I've always had a camera. And here's the thing, Stacey, I had a camera all along, but what I would typically do is document. I would take, interesting. yeah, I would document events, people, things, you know, in high school. And, And then what I would do is I would print out the photographs and make, give prints to people like, this is what we did. This was a fun time. And, and so I've always had a camera But then there was this shift at some point in my 30s where I realized I wanted to use that camera differently. Mm -hmm. I wanted to not necessarily document because I wanted to be more present, right? This fits with me going on more retreats and silence, using meditation, looking inward, that I wanted to be present, not documenting everything. And I could turn the lens, the camera lens into nature into light into details and be creative with my camera. Mm. And so that was a huge shift for me. And that opened up a lot of just creativity and play and I took some online photography classes. I mentioned to you when we were talking earlier I took a year-long self-portrait. Yes. class with a hundred other women. That was amazing. A lot a lot of this was happening in the Three years before I ended up leaving my career in academia, I took a poetry class too. I took some writing classes. There was just a lot of opening up to what might be possible instead of this a little bit of a box I was putting myself in. I'm Mm -hmm. an academic. I'm a statistician. I'm not creative. No, I can do these photo, this photography differently. I could take self portraits of myself. I can garden. I mentioned to you too, that was uh, Mm -hmm. something in my forties. All of a sudden I started gardening. Wow. Well, that's amazing too. And there's a lot of creativity there. So all of this helped open me up to not be in such a box. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of that opening up made me ultimately realize, hmm, well, I don't have to stay in academia. You know, there might be another thing I could be doing. So photography, self-portraiture, writing, poetry, poetry that I thought, I don't understand poetry. I mean, that was a story I told myself, though. Stacey's raising her hand right now, audience. Same. And that was just something I told myself. And then I started reading more poetry. And again, all of this was when I was expanding my mindfulness practice, because a lot of the tools that we develop when we practice meditation are around just life. You know, it doesn't have to be meditation, how you get this. You get them in a lot of ways of life, but just being more open, being more curious, not knowing. Mm -hmm. And I started reading some poems and thinking, oh, this language is beautiful. And maybe I don't understand everything that's happening, but I don't need to. And this is how I feel and what I see. And so there are a lot of those kinds of things that creativity really helped open up within me. I'm feeling this delicious journey from your head to your heart. 
Stacey, you, you nailed it. Like you just nailed part of why then it was intolerable to mm. be staying in academia any longer. Mm, tell me about that. Because I was doing, that's exactly the journey. So heady, heady, heady. Um, having that embodiment of, of being a lifelong athlete, the meditation, but it was really sinking into that space of the heart mm. and having, feeling all the feels. You know, this comes in therapy, this comes in meditation. This comes from just living more years and going through really hard things, which we all do. And feeling all of that, exploring all the emotions, really recognizing how important that heart work was. Talking with my students about it, right? Talk, this is where all of those conversations with my students were coming from. And yet what it felt like was so many of the decisions that were being made in the organization of academia and this wasn't the place that I was at. Lawrence University, I absolutely love. This is indicative of a bigger structure. It's yeah. like any ac academic place, institution you'd be in. I mean, quite naturally, it's a place of learning, right? So it's the learning, it's the mind, it's, and then the, uh, and the achieving and the judgment of that. And so I understand all of those things. It's just that those weren't as important to me anymore. Yeah. And I was really, picking my own journey more fully into my heart. And it just didn't feel in integrity or right or good anymore to be focused so much on the heady, the heady pieces, the teaching the statistics and making sure they got it, got that, got the concepts. It still felt like we weren't wholeheartedly working with the whole person. Mm -hmm. It was still mostly their minds that we were caring about. And that just didn't feel right to me ultimately. Yeah. You used the word intolerable. Mm. Was there a last straw? I mean, of course there was, but do you remember what it was? So I had spent, I'd say at least three years where I was recognizing, wow, this is really hard. This has been, it's hard to go back, start up a, a new school year, stuff's going on here. And then there was one summer where I had all this creativity going on and all this like opening up and like really feeling like who I was and like in the heart, as you were mm -hmm. saying, and in the head too, the head, the heart and the body. Right. And realizing, you know, I think I just gotta, this is what it is. I just gotta take what I can in the summer where we're not as intensely in the work and then I'll go back and do my job and then I'll just utilize the summer again the next summer. And so then it was September, going back to school, and during the week before classes, just really feeling like actually being on campus and feeling a sense of fear, like an embodied sense of something wasn't quite right, mm. Stacy. And I, at that time, I couldn't recognize it maybe as what it was, but it was intolerable. Mm. And I thought, I know wow, that feeling. this is just doesn't seem right anymore. And I was just exhausted. We were just starting. Mm. This is the time where everyone has energy and creativity and interest. And we were just starting. I was exhausted. One of my friends saw me in the hallway and said, oh my gosh, you look like we're already halfway through the year. And I, and I thought, oh, I do. And that kind of intolerable feeling stayed with me for the next month. And that's when I started thinking, okay, I need to shift something. Do I need to go to part-time? Could I ask the provost about that? Do like, what's going on here? Mm -hmm. And ultimately it led, there's a lot of 
soul searching around it and a lot of conversations with really close friends. And one of those close friends that I had a conversation with afterward, I realized, oh, I could actually leave this career. Hmm. That didn't dawned on me, Stacy, because all the models I had seen is like, once you get tenure, job for life, you you keep it. Yeah. You don't leave. Maybe you go to a different school, but you don't leave. Yeah. It's, what are you crazy? You're going to leave a job for life? Yeah. So all of a sudden, when as soon as I realized, oh, I could actually resign, <laughs> I knew I was going to. I, I truly mean it. Like, snap my fingers. I knew I was going to. I just needed that paradigm shift because wow. it hadn't entered my mind that I could leave. And there was a lot around that still. I mean, there's still some fear and a lot of care. Like I knew that it was going to be hard to leave. Um, wouldn't be. I was very comfortable in my decision. It might impact a lot of other folks, my students, yeah, my colleagues sure. that didn't want me to go. So there was still a lot of work that came next. But as soon as I thought, oh my gosh, I could leave. Then all of a sudden that intolerable feeling like went away. I realized, ah, I can be more in integrity. I can be more aligned. And whatever is next is going to line up that heart work, that presence work, that compassion work, whatever it was going to be, that that people work, but in a way that felt good and true to me. Yeah. Yummy, 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 yummy. Yeah. As you were talking, I was just like, oh, you were soul sick. Mm. That's it. Yes, I was. Yeah. And then you realized there was a way out and you got out. And by the way, I should say that when I made the decision to resign, I had a whole year where I got to be in my position, help them find somebody else, say all the goodbyes, feel good about it all. Oh, wow. That's the gold standard. Yeah. So I really, leaving. we parted ways with with a lot of care and that was important. Mm -hmm. It was important for me and I think important for uh, the university too, the students and the faculty and my colleagues. And so I had that year and I just sort of let things simmer. I didn't want to grab something right away. And I was really lucky about this because my husband and I could we were okay on his salary. So it gave me some space to not feel like I needed to leap at the next thing. Yeah. And I was really grateful for that because I could see how, ooh, and that achievement and that doing and that identity in the culture that I might just grab something else, mm -hmm. who knows why, just because it would fill something up. Yeah, And I had some space to sit with it. And within the first six months after finishing at Lawrence, it was so clear to me. I love teaching. That's why I got my PhD. Mm. I didn't love statistics, but I love teaching. I love connecting with folks and I love working with some topic that folks might have initially think they cannot do or have a hard time with and having it be accessible and creating a space for them to experiment with it that feels safe. And just like I did with statistics, I do that now with mindfulness and with meditation. This thing that changed my life in such radically positive ways, that's what I could bring next. That's mm -hmm. what I could teach next. And so that's what I shifted to. And needed to uh, apprentice it for a little while because I was trying out something new and didn't want to feel like, oh, I can definitely do this because I didn't know if I could. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that all that I had gained in my experience as a teacher does translate. And my experience as a meditator translates into me now being able to teach mindfulness and meditation to a wide variety of people. 
And I just love it. I feel my soul is not sick. My soul is well. Mm -hmm. And there's great alignment because how I want to be living my life, I'm basically called out on because I'm teaching around that now too. And so if I'm going to ask anybody who's taking my classes to practice a certain thing, I'm going to practice that too. Yeah. Yeah. You're a barrier breaker. Mm. You like to break barriers for people. Stacey, I would never have thought of myself in that way. Do you see it now that I said it? Well, I definitely see the barrier breaker in terms of leaving, leaving academia because I've had a lot of people respond to that as like, holy wow, that was amazing for in a lot of different ways. So I, I see that. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I see it in the other spaces. Mm. I just see it as you like to lead people through their own barriers and get them to the other side. I love it that way that you phrased it. I was thinking that like I myself was the breaking the barrier so someone could come behind me, but just I'm trying to help folks move through their own barriers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, Stacey, yeah whether it's, it's true. Whether it's statistics or meditation or creativity. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. All of those things. One of the things that I share regularly with anybody that's taking any of my classes is that I'm not imparting anything on folks in my mindfulness classes. I'm just helping create the space that they can tune in with themselves mm. and listen to their own inner compass, their own wisdom that's there, that's always there. It just gets covered over. Yeah. Just so much gets covered over in our culture and the busyness and the go, go, go ness. So, mm-hmm. yeah, in that sense, too, creating a space so that people can break through their own barriers. Yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Do you want to circle back to voice? Sure. Some things are just popping in my mind right now. Say Say them. Well, first, I just want to say, as I'm sort of reflecting, I've been reflecting on my life, that that voice getting stronger and stronger as I have more experiences, I live life more, I'm making all of these shifts and changes. But that strength of the voice to actually shift my career and trust in that, trusting that sort of inner voice, and then using my my own voice, like I'm using it right now, to speak with folks. Using my voice in a literal way, because so much of what I do is I guide meditations. Mm-hmm. And so many people that have taken a variety of classes from me say, I trust your voice. Mm-hmm. Like the, the sound of the voice itself. Mm-hmm. Or that there's some... Um, calling back, you know, with that voice, that remembering. And so literally my voice now is tied so much to the work that I'm doing. Mm -hmm. Another thing that arose just when you asked that question is that how our voice is tied to our breath and how the breath carries our voice. And I was holding my breath really tightly. And that's another, mm, I think, symptom of the soul sickness that you were talking about. And now I don't do that. Now I get to take my time and breathe. And another last piece is that uh, in when I was in my 40s and I was in back in therapy because it felt like I needed to, this is when I was kind of unraveling some of these pieces mm-hmm. around my work, that there was always this kind of like uncomfortable feeling in my throat. Like it was a place kind of like where all the stress or the muck or whatever would would land would be in my throat. And um, I remember my therapist saying, wow, Joy, I really would love it if at some point you didn't have that feeling in your throat anymore. And again, tied to voice, right? To expression, to mm-hmm. our true expression, to our 
to our courage to being who we are and believing in it. I don't have that feeling in my throat anymore, Stacy. Mm. I don't have that feeling in my throat anymore. Ooh, and your eyes are sparkling as you mm. say that too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's wonderful. Is there anything that you've always wanted to say that you haven't had the chance to say? That is such a deep question, Stacy. Yeah, I feel like I caught you off guard. Did I catch you off guard? <laughs> it no is a big question. No one has ever asked that before. I don't, I've never reflected on that before. Mm. So I don't, I mean, because I haven't reflected on it, there's nothing that immediately comes to mind. I feel like I, at this point in my life, and I may be kidding myself a little bit, but I feel like I do say what I need to say. Maybe not to all people all the time, but in general, yeah, I say what I need to say. Yeah. It's hard-won wisdom, what you just said. Mm-hmm. You went through a lot to get there. <laughs> it kind of feels like a good place to stop. Yeah. Thank you so much, Stacy. Not only just for this conversation, but for this whole podcast, mm. for elevating voices that are important to be elevated and heard, including yours. Thank you. And just for your presence and your creativity and your light. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Back at you. Take care. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye. Full Spirals was produced by Boom Arts in Appleton, Wisconsin. Theme music by Helen Avakian. Additional music provided by Beth Kelly. Production assistance by Jeff Ryan. If you liked what you heard today, please rate, review, and share Full Spirals. Bring your friends and your fam along for the ride on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your favorite listening platform, because we really are all in this together. Till next time, take care. <laughs> <laughs>